Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Price Picks is the easiest and most exciting way to get in on the action. Whether you watch your favorite sports and players, pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Download the app today. Use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. New Year's is now in the rearview mirror. By now, some of the excitement about our New Year's resolutions may be dying down, much like my excitement for Chelsea Football Club as we get further and further into the season. If you're looking for performance apparel that can help give you the extra push you need to keep up with your health goals, Viore has you covered. Viore creates incredibly versatile and comfortable activewear designed to look great in everyday life in and out of the gym, or in my case, on or off the tennis court. Plus, Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint by offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 and beyond. They are utilizing better sustainable materials for their products, empowering your best active life. With Viore, you can feel good about the things you buy and also how they are made. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash MIB. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash MIB. Not only Will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns? Trust me, go to viore.com slash MIB and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's From the Embassy Row Studios in the crap part of Bedford, New York, and the crap part of West Hollywood, California, it's the Men in Blazers podcast, Roger. Dave, we back like the Chicago White Sox. But if they had lost last night and got swept, it would have capped a truly haunting sports day. I don't know what I would have done with myself, Dave, but enough about me. How are you doing? This good. The Buffalo Bills redeemed my weekend, without a doubt. I mean, England healthily trounced Andorra, but I don't think that was a shock to anyone. Justin Fields is the one and true king, <laughs> but it's a holiday today. I got to take Martin Scorsese for a hike. We've got some. We've got some complicated football to untangle, both here in the United States and up north in Newcastle, Dave. Let's dive right in. Okay, Roger, quick piece of business, though, from Men in Blazers World Headquarters. We are back on Spotify Greenroom on our (laughs) usual day of Wednesday this week. However, we will go on at a special time of about 9 p.m. Eastern time, as soon as the U.S. wraps up its game against Costa Rica. (laughs) Los ticos. Information on how to access Spotify Greenroom is all over our social media. It's easy, it's free, and it's your chance to actually participate in the creation of this very podcast by asking your questions live on air. Come and join us, dear GFOP. And Rog, another piece of news, a very special edition of your Band of Brothers podcast drops this Thursday. Just thinking about Costa Rica makes me think about Pura Vida, Pura Vida, Greg, Pura Vida. Yes, Dave, this week, one of actually my favourite episodes of the whole of the Band of Brothers series. We head to the Baston episode and talk with Shane Taylor, the actor who played Doc Eugene Rowe, an English bloke 
who was able to transform himself into a Louisiana medic, an incredible human being who went to war without a gun to heal, not to kill. And, you know, in a series filled with phenomenal performances, to me, Shane really delivered something special. And I can't wait for everyone to hear this episode, his episode. It will be available on HBO Max, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for your beautiful messages about this show. We really poured our heart and our soul into it. Be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and please, please, please spread the word. Uh, Rog, quickly also, the first episode of Jeopardy I actually produced uh, as uh, today. Check local listings. Uh, one of the best episodes of television I've ever been fortunate enough to be involved in. Of course, I didn't really have much to do with it. I just was there watching, really, on my first day. <laughs> I witnessed it. You just hosted it. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> I just witnessed it. Um, it's so funny, my God. The the crossover of GFOPs in the uh, Jeopardy world and uh, Blazers world continues. A very confused Matamodio, this serial, brilliant uh, Jeopardy winner. <laughs> Um, who remains champion on the show today. He, um, somebody wrote a uh, start the Matamodio, oh, oh, announce Matamodio to Newcastle and copied me and Matamodio. Matamodio with a very confused question mark with no idea what that meant and what was going on. Um, Matamodio sounds like one of the great Brazilian midfielders of all time. Is he he the first Jeopardy contestant to only go by one name? Amodio. Oh, is it? That's his last name, Amodio. Yeah, his last name was Amodio. Oh, I thought his whole name was Matamodio. Matamodio. Yeah, just like, yeah, just like, you know, Firmino, Bobby Firmino passes to Matamodio. They could be, oh, that, that would be. They could be. That would be a a one-two punch up there with Limu, Emu and Doug. Yeah, I'll check the photocopy of his birth certificate when I get into the office. Okay, what's, what's like? What's it like hosting on your own? (laughs) I'm not hosting, Rod. Please stop. Okay, you know what? You better toast. Start us off with a toast, Roger. Oh, mate. I raised, actually, I raised my first second bud to you and all that you are learning and experiencing and achieving and just loving. It's really joyous to, to witness. It's joyous to experience by your side. And I want to raise my first third bud of the day to the history made on Saturday in European football, Andorra, uh, when the first England national team game of all time took place that was refereed by an all-female officiating crew. It is amazing. Ukraine's Katerina Monzel was the referee. Her compatriots, Marina Streletska and Svetolina Grushko, stepped out alongside her as her assistants. It was was amazing to witness these three women walk out with 22 uh, male players, all of whom they were about to caution, marching right behind you. And there, a Mike Dean to be seen. I raised my Bud fan, Blood fan to this achievement. England manager Gareth Southgate rightly called it a, quote, very important moment. I'll just say, CONCACAF, I know you're listening, get on it, because it is the quickest way to, you know, get some refs in your game who actually know how to run football. But I want to also say, may we all soon live in a world where this becomes not news because sports needs more, so much more of this. Maybe we should just play our women instead of our men, Rog. Uh, The US men's national team, nil. Panama, one. Let's dive right in. A heavily, 
heavily rotated US side lose their first octagonal game, falling to a dominant Los Canaderos in Panama City. Panama went close on several occasions in the first half, forcing some nice saves out of Matt Turner. And just when it looked like Greg had applied the defibrillators via halftime substitutes, Brendan Aronson and Tyler Adams, Panama found a way through. In the 54th minute, Annabel Godoy's header caromed off the golden mohawk of Jussie Zardes <laughs> and into the goal. The U.S was unable to muster much in the way of response against a well-organized and well-up-for-it Panamanian defense. A very disappointing night as the U.S. relinquished an excellent opportunity to put a stranglehold on their CONCACAF World Cup qualifying campaign. They are now in second place, three points behind Mexico and uh, tied with Panama, I think. Oh, there you go. And let's just say Tracy Chapman's debut album, Got a lot of spins late last night. <laughs> Not going to lie, this one hurt four years to the day after we emoliated our World Cup 2018 hopes in Cuba against Trinidad and Tobago. We traveled to Panama, a place the United States had never lost, and crapped the bed, I think is the tactical term for it, Dave. Oh, impotently in a style that was actually an eerie echo of the Trinidadian and Tobago loss. Going, so true. Going under without a trace, with astonishment. Do you not know who we are in a game, let's just say, laid bare, and we'll unpack it, a lot of truth about our dreams and our realities before we get into the game and the almost self-sabotaging selection, which we will discuss, because I know, um, having spoken to you afterwards, you were just seething. I want to go back to something Greg Berhalter said in the immediate feel-good aftermath of Thursday night's 2-0 win against, well, Jamaica. I call them actually bottom-of-the-table Jamaica, where a reality check now. In the post-match comments, he said, essentially, this could be a trap game, a quote that was, well, now is like Chekhov's gun. He said, everything was pretty good about this game, the Jamaica game. The trap is going to be us thinking we're great and thinking we've qualified for the World Cup. And if we do that... We'll get our ass kicked in Panama on Sunday. These are real quotes of Greg Berhalter from the previous post game. I mean, David, serious question, serious question. Is Greg Berhalter Cassandra, given the power to see the future by Apollo? He's a prophet! Yeah, He's but then, a prophet! But then cursed because he can only predict his own death and be powerless <laughs> to stop it. How do you say that and then go and do that? But what he didn't predict, or what he certainly didn't let us know that he'd predicted, is that he was going to... I mean, I don't think rotate is a big enough word. It's like rotate is not what you, you know, do to a top, Roger. It's not what a carousel really does. I mean, he he just span the lineup into, you know, a barely recognisable... I think... I'm not sure that if you'd have done a sort of a sweepstakes and asked... 100,000 US fans to predict their starting lineup. I'm not sure that anybody would have come up with that starting lineup other than Greg Berhalter. You mean a starting lineup that can only be described as 11 random Americans? And, <laughs> I mean, I, I will say that's what's so amazing because he both said that. And then I wondered, is he Cassandra powerless to stop the future? He does have the power to stop the future because it dawned on me, Greg Berhalter, you know, picks the team and... I, I know there was no Weston McKinney out with injury, and I know we lack the English-based players because of COVID regulations. You know, that's essentially uh, Anthony Robinson. But my lord, 
we have enough talent to get this job done in Panama. You know, Brendan Aronson is my spark. He's got the goals. He gets the assists. Let's bench him. Pepe. Pepe has either scored or assisted. Is it the last five goals since he rose up to claim his Princeton? Let's bench him. Tyler Adams, the heart, the brains, the leader of my team. You out. I am going to, you know, go Legette and Acosta and the win cried Jossie. Um, I, you know, I, I always, we've always joked that the US, we believe, can beat anyone with Jossie plus 10. And this game tested that theory, David. What, what was it? Because there is a thin line between love and hate. There's a thin line between squad rotation and squad decimation. Why would you go medieval on your best starting 11? I mean, to make seven changes from that team against Jamaica. I know they've got to play against Costa Rica um, on Wednesday, but you feel like there's enough time before that game. And this is the harder, this is the much harder game. And this is against a team who you are competing uh, with for those top three and a half places in the octagon. So to go and rotate so heavily in this match seems so bizarre. Um, uh, yeah, I don't completely get it. You know, I want to introduce another, you know, element uh, as well, which is, just the lack, and even when you look at the bench, and I know just all over Twitter and everybody's suggesting what the lineup should have been and where it should have been, but I'm just shocked that there's really only one true veteran of the U.S. men's national team and, and squads and, you know, a guy with a lot of experience in that squad, and that's DeAndre Yedlin. And he didn't start. He came on super late. This is a team, and in international football, you need veteran leadership. And there is just... No veteran leadership on this squad whatsoever. Perhaps that's a hangover of the failure to qualify for 2018. Um, you know, a lot of players retiring, you know, from international football who were part of the 2014 squad. Or being retired. There's a, yeah. there's a, a lot of them who are not retired, but have essentially been retired. But you're right. International squads are about balance. We know this squad is not balanced. But even in a squad which is not balanced, to, to throw that lineup out, yeah, what what was it? Was it looking ahead to the next game against Costa Rica? You know, complacency. That's almost the best case. Uh, the worst case is, I'm not saying this is what happened. I don't know. But the worst case is not knowing what you're doing, which is a football chant that I've just refrained myself from breaking into. Yeah. yeah. Or, or failing to realize that the Gold Cup won over the summer with a B team. It was nice. We said this at the time. It was nice. It gave fans happy memories. It gave B-team players experience playing together. But it proved in an elite competition way nothing because it was not an elite competition. We said that at the time. It would be like Everton uh, believing they're going to win a title because they won the Florida Cup. And for a young team to deliver a message that they need to avoid complacency as Greg did, then do that to the starting lineup, to me, is reckless because consistent football is bloody hard in CONCACAF. It is almost impossible when you change everything. And here's the story, David. Baseline, the US win when we start Pepe. Dude is 18. When I was 18, I could drink till 4 a.m. in the morning, go and get a C in a law essay, feel very proud of it, and then drink until 5 the next morning. What I'm trying to say is, he can definitely play three games in a week, can't he? Yeah, I would say so. And certainly needed to play in this game. And let's give credit to Panama. P 
Panama just were better than the US in every phase of the game. It was they a make or break some, for them. Make yeah, or they, break. They make played break. some beautiful football. They looked incredibly organized, um, incredibly motivated, uh, showed great moments of skill. And what you really need more than anything else, I think we have learned this about CONCACAF, is you need to like get hold of that bouncing ball on a pitch that was essentially cement slabs covered with a bit of grass. You just need to get hold of that ball in the air and stop it bouncing and get it under control, especially in the middle of the park, which is something that the US never managed to do. There's so much about this that does fall back on on Greg. And, you know, one interesting factoid, you know, I think every game we are fed, I'm starting to see a pattern, we are starting to get fed a interesting Greg Berhalter factoid ahead of every game in an effort to grow our emotional connection. And in this one, before kickoff, he told the Assemble Football Media, Dave, I don't know if you heard this, he let slip that he, he collects Starbucks mugs from every city he coaches <laughs> Who is the person out there? I have my suspicions of who it is. But there must be someone in the press corps that this appeals to. That they look at Greg and they say, oh, my God, his, he wears more interesting sneakers than me. He, uh, I wouldn't okay. go jogging in a crowded, <laughs> in a crowded downtown area Free before game. a game. I can't, I don't think I can make it behind the back, uh, bounce pass, yeah, the, no look. The, the bounce passes, the bounce passes meme oh. is, is, a, is, a, is a thing. <laughs> and by the way, the, the Starbucks mugs thing, I mean, why would you do that when... Hard Rock Cafe t-shirts are available. <laughs> but we'll get back to that because you are right. You know, the motivation. Yeah, the, If the idea for this one was three games in a week hard, fresh legs, fresh energy, fresh tempo, that was what was so jaw-dropping about the opening of this game. As I said, a make or break one for Panama. They charge at our makeshift team. And those fresh legs that, were I'm guessing the theory in, in in making seven changes the brutal part of the loss was just how timid how tempo-less we were from the off yeah, Acosta and Leggett their distribution was for large parts of that first half slapstick Musa left so much to do just started to try and force it in midfield and was just dispossessed time and time again Panama propelled themselves almost at will down the flanks on counter after counter there was an edginess in every facet of play even Matt Turner who has been a really the revelation of this past year for the US men's national team was suddenly flapping at corners and yeah Greg Berhalter <laughs> by the way and Panama were trying to score from every corner they were but with the Olympico they went Olympico attempt after Olympico attempt I loved it that was an, that was an amazing that was, whatever they saw you know Matt Turner has been has been really the joy long term joy of the past year uh, before Pepe arrived of this US men's team something they said I don't know if they saw something or if they're just like, he is their icon at the moment. Let's go right. Let's knock off their king. Let us put Matt Turner under pressure and everything else will wobble. Whatever it was, was just, I, mean, I don't know why more, like more elite footballers are not just like, yeah, that's all I do on the field. I'm just on it for corners. Just all I do is score from corners. But it was, it was amazing to see, David. We were bewildered at that. It was, it, we were just like, God, they're doing that to us. And worse, we're finding it very hard to stop it struggled to build out from the back when they gave that up and started playing long they couldn't get their head you know on the ball moving forward there seemed to be very little shape um 
or direction to their offensive play. Um, very few chances. They weren't good from set pieces. The delivery wasn't good. Oh, and worst of all, Davo, from an American perspective, no apparent leadership. As you said, there was no one stepping up to get on that ball. You know, in that first half, to me, it was a team without leaders. And that dynamic of MLS guys and young European-based players experiencing CONCACAF for the first time just looked like an awkward, awkward mix. The US playing, to me, the same kind of directionless, rudderless football that we did in that awful last year when the program had Dave Sarakan as interim manager and the young players complained about how adrift they were tactically. Paul Carr tweeted, the US men's national team midfield trio completed 11 passes to each other in the first half. My God, 11 passes. This was you know, a hangover from the Gold Cup where we drank the Kool-Aid about our B team. Tonight, we found out what that was worth. It was not... Not a lot. Another first half for this US team without a goal. Eight games on a run. Honestly, Mason Crosby would have improved the accuracy of this US team's performance. Halftime, I couldn't stop thinking of the photograph that came out during the Jets game early morning. Christian Pulisic, did you see this one, David? He looked like Santa's little elf in Jets green looking miserable. It looked like they were were shooting some sort of football thing Christmas movie (laughs) at Spurs Stadium. Oh my God, that's how I felt watching the first 45. His face, just just the, 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 the doom of it all. Where had all the US good vibes gone, Davo? On came Adams and Aronson for Musa and Ariola uh, at halftime. But honestly, it made little difference. It was a band-aid on a gaping wound. We still look like a Gold Cup team playing Gold Cup football. And this, this, this is the CONCACAF Octagon Panama when a corner, they whipped it in. I mean, the goal, David, what did you see? Well, I saw three Panamanian, you know, <laughs> players in advance of the US men. I assume that the US men do understand that you cannot be offside from a corner. It is very difficult then if the ball is whipped in, you know, behind the US defence for them to like get back and get goal side of the ball. Um, and so it was, you know, perhaps a little flick off the Panamanian player or did Jossie Sardis just, you know, nut it into his own net unassisted? I couldn't really tell. But uh, Jossie, you know, was retreating back there and poof, you know, put it in his own net. I felt I mean, terrible for him. Honestly, the US, it's as if they had not seen. I mean, you were screaming at the television, they're going to try and whip the ball in at Matt Turner. They are going to try, I mean, Olympico at best. I mean, the, the other, the, or just put him under pressure. But the US still set up to play in standard zonal defense. They were the yeah. last people to not be aware about what was going to occur. And three players stood around Turner um, in that area, closely packed around, and the ball was cold into the panic zone. Godoy leapt up, Jassy alongside him. He looked to have had the last touch, even though they gave the goal generously to Godoy. This is CONCACAF. And he angled the header past a, just a bereft Matt Turner. And you haters said the United States couldn't score without Pepe. Honestly, don't hate on Jossie. Born gold scorer, just does what he does. Puts a biscuit in the basket. It was pretty shambolic, Davo. Um, but I wrote my game notes. I'm actually fascinated to see how the US would react. You know, I wrote down big tests for this young and experienced team. Have to believe if Aronson and Adams and then Pepe coming on, they have enough to build off. This could be a comeback that ballads are written about, but it was not to be down the stretch. I mean, 
I can't believe this statistic, David. It's unfathomable to me. This US team mustered not a single shot on goal. But the Panamanian players were dying on their feet. They were just pushing themselves, pushing themselves, pushing themselves. Um, and, you know, the US was still not jogging around the pitch, but they just weren't expending the kind of energy you expected them to expend when they're trying to come back from a 1-0 deficit. You know, the, the, the Panamanian players are coming down with cramp all over the shop. They're, those stretchers from the 1960s, which are my new favourite, favourite CONCACAF oh, no. trope. You love that, didn't you? Oh, do you, my word. By the way, do you think the Panamanians do have stretchers from the 2020s? And they were just like, no, don't use the modern ones. No, don't ones. use the good stretchers. Yeah, use the, we use need the, props, the old ones. Use the, prop, use the comedy CONCACAF <laughs> gag stretchers. Oh, that. my word. I think I think those are honestly last used in the making of the movie 1917 <laughs> in a trench scene. They were amazing. No, they're not. They're 19th century. You can't use those. They're, 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 they're not historically accurate. Uh, the honest truth was the most worrying, disconcerting part of the whole game was until that last 50 minutes replete with the pitch invaders, the fake injuries, the extra balls thrown on the field, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the multiple headbands that needed to be taped onto players. Essentially, I believe, and listeners will know whether this is accurate or not, in my mind, this may be a misread, I think Panama executed pages 27 to 108 in the big book of CONCACAF shithousery. Yeah. But they, they, they did it all in the last 50 minutes because the rest of the game, did not feel that conquer cafe. And that's the true horror. Panama were just flat out better than the United States in every phase, technically, tactically, you know, in motivation, in game plan, across, you name it, across the board. And that that is how woeful it was. And what pissed me off was that the final whistle, none of the players seemed angry or disappointed. It was just more like, on to the next, we go again. And all those good vibes from the win against Jamaica, aka bottom of the table, Jamaica are now gone. Unbeaten streak ends, 13 games. But, you know, yes, this schedule's tough, three games in a week. But until this loss, we've always said the the common wisdom was this was meant to favour the United States squad. We have touted our depth and to not muster a shot on goal, to have a XG, an expected goal of 022 is is honestly impotence that I, I can't fathom with this squad. The octagon has become really after five games, five fourteenths of the way through Rog, which as you know does not reduce. Um there are five teams, certainly, I'd say Mexico, USA, Panama, Canada, Costa Rica, all competing for three and a half places. This is the kind of math not working that formed the Super League, Rog. This is a <laughs> This is a this is becoming a problem. Yes. I mean it's funny you mentioned the Super League because the United States did look like a CONCACAF Manchester United. We have won games, if you've watched over the last year, there have been warning signs flashing, but in key moments like Manchester United, there've been games in which the performance, the quality, the idea of football has been woefully lacking. But we found a way to step up and get a goal in a key moment. Like if you look at the Nations League performances, many, many of the goal cap ones, to be honest, that we, we are like a CONCACAF Manchester United. And last night we saw our flaws in the light of day. We looked like what we are, a young team, a young team missing key players. Yes, yes, undoubtedly no Pulisic, no Geo, no Western. But in the maze, the mire that is CONCACAF, 
We are also a young team with an inexperienced coach who is clearly learning as we go along in this CONCACAF world, which, yes, well played Panama. We should say that up top. Strong performance, deserved win. I hope you had an incredible night. But David, how does every single player have a terrible game on the same night? I mean, I felt, by the way, I should say, for the American fans who travelled to Panama for that one, I felt for them, their passion, their support deserves more. And I I can't work out the answer to that question. Every single player has a terrible game on the same night. Well, I do think some of it is that is that the shape? I couldn't really describe to you that tactical formation. I couldn't really say to you, this is what the US are trying to do. This is what the game plan is. Um, it's tough to really see it. You watch a lot of, you know, better teams in world football and you understand the game plan. Certainly for Panama, I understood that game plan. You could understand the way they're playing. They were going to get the ball wide. That's where their skilled players were. And they were going to win a lot of aerial balls in the middle of the park. And they getting to loose ball, loose ball, loose ball, loose ball. Their coach was just driving them on to just make loose balls again and again. That is, again, that's a Manchester United thing. What is the idea of the football apart from to make big plays in in big moments? And I've got to say a horrible hypothetical to play and I don't encourage you to think this one too is I love the emergence of Ricardo Pepe but without his goals in the Honduras game and against Jamaica where would we be exactly do not think about that repress that thought I wish I'd not mentioned it but all I can say David you're right the idea of football was lacking feels like it's been lacking Jesse Marsh must have spent last night liking a lot of tweets because Mm. this one you know this one really exploded in Greg Berhalter's face you know in post game the idea of football, a lot of the questions revolved around that. And he, he sounded more like Cousin Greg being deposed by uh, Congress than Greg Berhalter, US manager with an idea of football. And you know, he said, it's sports, it's humans. There's no, I think, one explanation for it. But our distances were too far. We didn't have that pop and we didn't have the legs we needed, and we suffered for it. We weren't great in duels. He didn't sound, I must say, if you look at the post-match press conference, it didn't sound like a man who either had an idea of what he wanted or an explanation internally about why he didn't show himself. And in moments of challenge like this, Davo, you know, his origin story, we've got to say, it does blow, it does weigh him down in a way it wouldn't another coach. Being the brother of one of the executives of US soccer at the time, who uh, decided to appoint him. It does colour everything. And and it makes him look suddenly, in this moment, exposed, less ready. You know, a lot of fans are you know, beating the drum that he's out of his depth. The, the true hardcore are howling in their eyes. Greg has a very, very short rope to prove himself. We've got Wednesday to correct this. You can easily, in CONCACAF narrative flip, win again, we're back. But how do you watch it objectively from a distance? I mean, Rod, you say that and you're right in that there should be this idea of a short rope. There should be this idea of, you know, look, he's he's got to turn things around fast. But you read the US media coverage of this game. You know, I haven't seen all the stories this morning, but certainly looking on Twitter last night and the silence across US media was quite staggering. You know... Saw that Hercules Gomez, Brianna Scurry, you know, Clint Dempsey, credit them, all came out and, and you know, made pretty strong points against Burhalter and the, the squad rotation and selection. Um, but really, silence from 
from what I could tell from the rest of the US soccer media. Hercules Gomez, the notion that pure effort will get the US men's national team by is so arrogant. Like they're so deep and talented that if they try, they'll steamroll other, other countries in CONCACAF. Set your players up to succeed. Tactical, technical intelligence trumps effort. Um, it is it is a wild, I mean, it's a wild narrative. A coach who inherited the job very early in his career. You know, that, that, that's a, we've done that before. See uh, American fiasco, Steve Sampson. Another thing that troubles me, the old CONCACAF adage is that you win at home and then you try and get a point on the road. You know, we didn't do that. But to be honest, I think that's a kind of mediocre approach to CONCACAF. This team, this squad should should expect to win. It really should. At S. Cruz 2002, uh, quipped, well, at least they picked a good sports day to play so poorly. Yes, with the NFL schedule, the Major League Baseball playoffs. One thing that was astonishing, this loss barely made a dent on the wider sports-loving football curious audience. It really happened. Yeah. It was a tree. Uh, falling in a CONCACAF forest at CT Fitzpatrick tweeted I'm a Detroit Lions fan and that US men's national team performance was the most depressing thing I saw today God the Lions why always us I mean Wednesday cannot come quick enough Dave what, what changes would you like to see before that game against Costa Rica I mean firstly I'd like a severe change in attitude and the change in attitude is that the US aren't trying to qualify for a tournament. Surely that is not the point. Surely the point is that we're trying to become a team who are going to compete at the World Cup. You know, this was a Panama team who got decimated at the last World Cup, probably the worst team there. The US have to be setting their sights beyond qualification and beyond doing well. Right now, they may get their qualification back on track, but they are so far behind showing us any progress towards becoming a better World Cup team, a better team on the world stage. And I know some people say, oh, that's harsh. After Jamaica, everything was good. But I think the Jamaica thing is the blip. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the standard. And let's face it, Jamaica are another very, very poor team who the U.S. beat at home. Um, you know, the U.S. have got to figure out how to, how to start playing CONCACAF football and then at the same time, fusing that into a team that can go and compete on the world stage. There's too much talent. There's too much money invested in this. And, you know, if Burhalter is going to prove himself, he's got to start showing a, a style of play that he's trying to get these guys to play. Because right now, I've watched him for, what, two years, three years? I don't, I do not understand. This is why the CONCACAF Man United, you know, analogy is so spot on, Rog. I just do not understand what he's trying to do. He's got Wednesday to show us that he knows what he's doing. Uh, to me, this is not full-on panic. This is just a flesh wound that can be forgotten if we prove that we learn from it. But someone has to show they understand. Someone needs to understand the warning signs are blinking, that they recognise them and they know what to do. GFOP's at Andando tweeted... Wednesday, here's a tip. Start the good players instead of the bad ones. At Binky Marsh 29 great GFOP tweeted, I'm ready for the drop of a Wednesday morning video of Coach Triple G going from an early morning jog through the mean streets of Columbus, Ohio, mm. decked out in a whole new line of US soccer gear. You know, what we want is Pepe 
Aronson, Tyler Adams will be back. Hopefully Weston, if his knock is healed. Uh, Robinson, Dest. You know, we have enough. We have more than enough. We need an idea of how to play. You know, I'm actually fascinated, and this is my last point. I'm fascinated big picture by something Landon Donovan said uh, to The Athletic last week about that, that highlighted the massive transition, the seismic transition that US soccer as a whole uh, is experiencing. I think both with a sense of the transition, and I think we're not talking enough about how seismic the transition is that we're grappling with. Landon was talking publicly after he'd gone off uh, on Western McKinney, uh, post-COVID protocol darkness of the last window. And Landon talked about when he joined the team, you know, back in the day when he was 18, the elder statesman made it clear to him that part of the job of being a US national team player was to, quote, grow the game in the United States, that they all had, quote, a collective responsibility to do that. And and, and knowing Landon, as I do, it's something he took unbelievably seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, took that, the dual job of winning on the field and growing the game off it. But the honest truth is, when I read Landon talk about that, I realised, you know, this young wave of talent, things have changed. Landon was right about his generation and they did a remarkable job. But this young cast, they've cracked Europe. They've cracked elite European football. They are not stuck in MLS. There is big money in the game for them. They have enormous salaries. They have huge sponsorship upside. They have a bank balance, which would make our eyes grow wide. In short, they've normalized football as United States players, which is great. But in normalizing it, there is something lost, something seismic, something that's been intrinsic to the United States men's national team for generations in US camps of old, from the days of Alexei and Winalda, that us against the world, we've got to prove ourselves. They don't. They've, they've proven themselves as individuals for their club teams. And we have to find something else now as our core idea as a US men's national team on the road to glory. Yeah, and perhaps also with you know MLS being... You know, at this point, you know, in its third decade, um, we're looking at, you know, MLS players who similarly feel that they've, you know, that they've achieved, that they've built a domestic league, that they're thriving. And suddenly this, um, you know, the sort of proving yourself within CONCACAF is not seen as being as big a thing. Look, I'm sure all of these players, if you interviewed them today, they're, they're, you know, gutted about what happened and, you know, embarrassed about the display and would 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 like it to be much better. But there is, I think going back to the, the, the initial point we we're making, there is something wrong in the makeup of this entire squad and the mix, um, the mix between these, you know, MLS veterans and European-based players, just, it does feel a little odd. It feels a little squirrely. And I think the mix of the squad has to, has to change a little bit over time. All of this will only be worth it if Greg Burhalter got a Starbucks coffee mug from Panama City. <laughs> Tommy got a mug from Panama City, oh. Dave. Uh, okay, Rog, we should get to other international news. France, they uh, won the UEFA Nations League after coming back from behind to beat Spain 2-1, thanks to a Karim Benzema worldie and a controversial but calm as you like. Uh, Kylian Mbappe goal in the 80th minute. Some very upset Spanish fans after this one, Rog. Yeah, I'm not surprised, David. Winning goal a bit dodgy. Mbappe clearly way offside, but uh, the fact the ball found him via a defender's touch, Eric Garcia, meant he was legally okay. 
even though it's widely against the spirit of the offside law. Oh, and an English referee having to call it as well. Not a finest moment, but Nations League fever, Davo. Have you got a nasty case? Well, it, it was quite good. It was great. I mean, it was very good. I've got to tell you, we, we criticise UA for a lot and they certainly have deserved it. But the Nations League, you know, and uh, a pretty good idea. It's an amazing idea. It's where it's at, baby. I mean, what a semi-final and a final. Uh, you, you have to take off your hat, your chapeau, right, Mr. Slow French to France? Yeah. Who, yeah, who have won everything. I mean, everything. They are the gold standard of national team programmes. What I actually admire most about the French, and there's a lot to admire about them, is their ability to rebound from disappointment in one tournament and then just go and win the next and... To me, Benzema, man, 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 all he does is score bangers. And yes, I know the sex vids thing, but God, his career art is just underground incredible. Um, And Spain are still young, but so much promise in that squad. I watched these games and thought, bloody hell, European football, Dave, we are living in golden times. Yeah, and uh, Spain also after that semi-final win, over Italy, great performance. Um, you know, Alathabal, that fantastic uh, opening goal for them. It's a great game of football. They should have the the uh, UEFA Nations League pretenders, France, play off against the real Nations League winners, Dave, the United States. Yeah. Now that, yeah. that, that would be, that's the kind of game I would love. I would love to see this US team play. As long as we've got stretchers from the 1960s, <laughs> we'll I'm there, right, <laughs> And in World Cup qualifying, Rog, England cruised to a routine 5-0 victory over Andorra at the Estadio Nacional, a game that saw several players on the fringes of the three-line setup get on the score sheet and stake their claim for a more regular spot. God, I mean, Belgium-France in the Nations League felt so good. International football at its best. England-Andorra. Mm. Mm, a bit ridiculous. Dundon, bit empty, bit ridiculous. Do you agree? Yeah, Jack Grealish scored a great under-11 goal with a direct throw from, <laughs> from Sam Johnston. That was amazing. It was literally like watching my son's football team. Um, yes. That was good. You know, Chilwell, not one in. Tammy Abraham got a goal. It was, it was Your mate JWP got a goal. It was fantastic. Yeah, we need more of the Belgian-France kind of international football and less of the latter. And I just say this game I watched for 90 minutes and was like, revamp the qualification process now. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to be back after the break to talk about the continuing fallout from the ownership change at Newcastle United. But first, a quick word from the GFOPs at BetterHelp. Price Picks is the best way to get action on sports in more than 30 states across the country, including some of my favorites, California, Texas, and Georgia. Godspeed, Georgia. I'm hungry for a dozen lemon pepper wet. But back to Price Picks. We've been hearing from so many WGFOPs who are loving double P, Pablo Picasso, Price Picks, which allows them to win up to 25 times their money for the soccer season, is a reason I do appreciate Price Picks because it's simple. During the Premier League match days, I've got roughly 239 tabs on my computer open as we attempt to work out our social media, the pod rundown, the upcoming interview, you get the drift. But because price picks is easy to play, I'm not having to constantly click to see how my gents are doing or how many certain actions are worth. You just select two or more players, pick more 
or less on their projected stats and you place your entry. That is how easy it can be. You also mix and match players from several leagues across the globe. Luca De La Torre, I'm looking at you, as well as other sports like basketball oh, and hockey. Oh, the capitals. Download the app today. Use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. It's promo code MIB. Prize picks. Pick more or pick less. It's that easy. It's Rog here to tell you about a product that I simply adore. It's been a long time staple in the Bennett refrigerator, Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. Always bold, always smooth. Yes, that is the very same Stoke as in the mighty Wrexham Fortress, known as the Stoke Kairas or the Stoke Racecourse, Wrexham AFC's home. They support it. They support football, which is just one great reason to love this coffee. It is my go-to enjoy during the football calendar, essentially the opposite of Everton. And you can check out their full lineup of 48-ounce cold brew products, something for everybody, from light to dark roast to seasonal favourites in a refrigerated multi-serve format. I tell you this, as someone whose blood type is now officially Stoke Espresso Blend, have the coffee house experience in the comfort of your own home and do it now. Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. And be sure to follow Wrexham AFC. Big love to all at Stoke. Courage. Okay. Rog, now to the continued ripples that are still emanating from that Steve Bruce cannonball-sized news on the River Tyne last week, the Saudi-backed takeover of Newcastle United Football Club. Rog, what's the latest? Oh, the latest and the greatest. Let's just start as we go unpack this level by level and just say these words. Poor Steve Bruce, a man who has struggled and wobbled and desperately tried to hold... It all together as Newcastle United. And if you would go up there and you spend time in that training ground, you really get a sense of just how much under the terrible, terrible 14-year ownership of Mike Ashley, the place was barely, barely alive. I mean, really crumbling. And Steve Bruce has had to try and hold it together uh, like a little Dutch boy with his finger in the dike. And then suddenly all this money pours in and the headlines immediately become Steve Bruce is expected to hold his last training at Newcastle United today. As Steve Gerrard, the Brodge, Antonio Conte, essentially everybody in football, apart from the name Steve Bruce, is linked to the job. I mean, let's unpack it, David. Look, first up, I want to be clear. The idea of a state owning or running a football club is to me, problematic in every case. PSG, Manchester City, we've talked about you know the challenges with that. To me, though, this one is so much worse. Saudi Arabia, Khashoggi, autocracy, human rights abuses. You know, why do nations buy football clubs? Because they want to sports wash or mask their image and state-sanctioned murder, repression, war in Yemen. I mean, it works. They, it, it, this is the darkness of global football or really global sports is it works. It can, it can change everything for any nation. And when you have moments like this, really, it's like lifting up a rock and seeing the ugliness of what's crawling underneath. I mean, David, we're having a World Cup in Qatar. This has always been football's way, hasn't it? The World Cup in 1930s in Italy under Mussolini, 1978 under the military hunter in Argentina. Last World Cup was a showcase for Putin's Russia. Next World Cup, it's an abomination that we're all just inured to in Qatar. This is what football has become, isn't it? Yeah, the Premier League, of course, has decided that this isn't a state-run team, that it's run by the PIF 
whatever that is, uh, some financial institution uh, that is, of course, controlled by the Saudi state. And actually, I think it's their I think it's their crown prince who is the runs that piff as well. That is an incredible that that's by the way, what you said is incredible. The Premier League said we have not the club has not been bought by Saudi Arabia. No, no, no. Saudi Arabia is run by Mohammed bin Sam, Salman, but the state is not running Newcastle. What we sold it to was an organization called the Public Investment Fund. That's what PIF is, David. The Public Investment Fund. An investment instrument shared by who? Oh, the Crown Prince bin Salman. I mean, yeah, so they're two wholly different things, right? I would say that is a is a bit of a challenge. Um, and you've got, as a result, Premier League owners have demanded an emergency meeting to discuss something which has already happened, David. So there's not, not a lot they can do to change it. But how does this hurt the brand of the Premier League big picture? I think the problem is, is there's just a gradual move towards it. And obviously what happened at PSG, what happened at Man City to, you know, I'm not saying to a lesser extent, I'm just saying it's all been part of the wave at Chelsea um, and with the money coming in, you know, to to all these clubs, it's just a continuation of a wave. At a certain point, you think, wait a minute, where is the line? Where is the line at which we will not allow, you know, certain people to own football clubs? But it just feels like that line is notional at this point. Oh yeah, the the whatever line had to be crossed was crossed a long, long time ago. I mean, as you you said, you know, the moment probably Roman Abramovich uh, stepped in um, to buy a club to essentially protect him in that difficult balance of power, that oligarch mm-hmm. dance with Putin, um, you know, and then obviously Manchester City being taken over uh, by Abu Dhabi. And yeah, I mean, if you're the Premier League, there's a terrible price that you pay um, to allow this. But it's, everything is emotional and rational. Football is emotional and rational. And we love sports because mostly because it allows us to bellow from the heart and forget the rational discipline of the rest of life or really the rational dis- discipline that we're meant to use in the rest of our life. And from the Premier League's perspective, you know, they're looking at statistics which are eye-boggling and they do steal the headlines in many cases, along with the potential transfers which immediately come with them. That's, that's the emotional and the rational. We're both appalled, but then we're like, hmm, Mbappe to Newcastle. And we're like, oh, they could come in for Haaland. You know, they could come in for Trey Young. They could come in for Aaron Rodgers. Are they going to get Fernando? I mean, the, the reality <laughs> is the, the wealth is... The wealth is like a, a whopping four hundred and thirty-five point yeah. eight billion. That's how much their new owners are worth. Five. T- this is the amazing statistic: five times as much as the league's next nine richest owners are worth combined. Um, we've got to ask, David, why would they want a football team other than that everyone in the Gulf region is doing it? As you've said, with Chelsea, PSG, um, Manchester City. I mean, can you describe what sports washing is? Because it, it does work, but we should we should say what it is. Well, I mean, sports washing is basically, you know, using the acquisition of global sports assets to to sort of wash your reputation. It's like sort of money laundering. It it cleans up your cash. Yeah, um, and, and it makes you. It, it just puts a yeah. It puts a different face on your essentially criminal empire. Yeah, you put a joyous, hopefully triumphant, glitzy face on your state, in this case, to the rest of the world. And in Saudi Arabia's case, cover up literally 
literally bloody tracks and when it happened i actually tweeted in the moment this is a you know the newcastle could potentially be the richest club in the world but they will definitely be the most morally complex and it is morally complex because this is not cut and dry a lot of americans are like what's morally complex about murder but if you're a newcastle fan you are not responsible for your team's owners. Almost all of them I've spoken to in England. And by the way, 97% of the official supporters club welcome this. And we'll talk about why. Uh, But it is morally complex. I mean, it's morally complex for a league which has sanctioned this, um, yet is constantly running, for instance, the the Rainbow Laces campaign they do to promote gay rights um, in football. I I don't know how you square that with the Saudi owners uh, record on... Uh, um, on human rights in general, but football football is rife with this awful kind of darkness. And you know, and I want to unpack this in the different levels, David. Uh, first of all, hitting the hitting the Newcastle fan predicament, the Premier League predicament, and then and then moving to see what uh, from what now, what do we expect to happen? And we should say Newcastle. Can you describe Newcastle because it is a unique and remarkable place, way up north, a great northern city, a proud town in which football is everything. Yeah, it's a great northern city, beautiful place, university town. I think you and I both applied to university there. I know I did um, and ended up going a little further north to Edinburgh. But every single time the train stopped in Newcastle on the way out there, I always thought, oh, what would my life be like in Newcastle? Um, It is, you know, a once great industrial city, no longer, you know, at the, you know, forefront of British industry, but it's having something of a renaissance because of, Frankly, from a from a cultural point of view, amazing people, amazing, amazing. football fans, amazing. amazing football history, amazing, and you know, constantly a really big club. Yeah, a Newcastle massive club. United, a really big club. We're a massive regional. Um, yeah, just that they are the powerhouse that way up north. If in Game of Thrones, this uh, the Newcastle is like it's just like north of the wall. It really is so bloody far up there, and it is as you say, it's. I loved it coming into that town, which is really a pub and club town, a bit like Liverpool now. It was once a massive coal town, um, a working class city, a proud city um, that was really like Liverpool done in in the 1980s under Thatcher. The coal pits closed and North of England was laid waste to. And this football team, when you come into Newcastle, St. James's Park is in the middle of the city on the high point in the middle of the city where most towns would be like, let's build our cathedral there. They did build the cathedral, but it's the football stadium. It's a place where the whole city comes to commune. Generations of football memories, such a trove uh, for the people of Newcastle. And then, got to remember, they've suffered through 14 years of Mike Ashley's slumlord ownership. I mean, can we just say good riddance to that leech? What awful, the worst of football um, he was really a speculator holding a jewel of a city ransom, knowing that he could flip it down the road. You know, David Conn uh, really captured this in his terrific reaction piece for The Guardian. He wrote that the Toon Army, the Geordie Nation, are fine with the takeover. They're euphoric, actually. The Supporters Trust has actively campaigned for it. They patiently explain they're at peace with all the arguments against Saudi ownership, responding that this is how the game has gone. And there's one counter-argument that trumps it. The club and the struggling post-Brexit austerity-battered city of Newcastle need the Saudis' money. And and to add to that, Davo, 
Um, there was a tweet at OilyHFR tweeted, I mean, the, these new owners, the UK government, the Royal Family and the Premier League have all welcomed the Saudis to our country of open arms. They've sold arms that they use to hurt others. And we make some of those arms in factories in nearby Sunderland. So this is morally complex, David. And I know mm-hmm. a lot of American Premier League fans who are a bit more distanced from Newcastle than the multi-generational loyal Newcastle fan base are like, ditch the team. But you can't just ditch a team because of their owners, can you, when they're in your blood? Yeah, well, what is ownership in football? I'm not trying to ask a deeply philosophical question, but, you know, you and I have discussed this growing up. We had no idea who owned our football teams, who owned Correct. our football clubs. This has become an obsession in the 21st century, really, with ownership. Um, you know, the, the, the city, the fans, the players, the manager – you know, that's who really feels like they own the clubs. The, the the people with the money are just coming in as custodians. Mike Ashley certainly isn't viewed as some great owner of this football club that they're beholden to. Um, so this is about money. And it is remarkable. That one of the things that shocked me most was the Newcastle fans chanting, in the moment, we've got our club back. We've got our club back, which really goes off what you're saying, that you, you, know, you feel that you own it when you have the right owners. And these pockets are so deep for these fans who have truly suffered, uh, for who the club is the probably the deepest manifestation of their own identity. Newcastle is in their blood. And you know, there is cognitive dissonance that kicks in. You know, if you want to intellectualize it, you can love the team. And, um, you know, like you can protest the president, but still love your country. You can do that dance. But the honest truth is, almost every Newcastle fan I've spoken to in England is just giddy. Um, at this prospect. When I think about it, it shouldn't be Newcastle fans uh, who are the gatekeepers of the, the the moral sense of right and wrong in football. Either the Premier League, or if the Premier League cannot do it, this should have been dealt with at the government level, with the government forcing football to regulate itself. Because there is, we should say, a fit and proper ownership test. You know, the Premier League does have rules, but those rules are not aimed at keeping out nation states with their, their boggling wealth. It was actually designed to keep out, well, really, future Mike Ashleys and men worse than him, con men who take over lower league teams without real financial backing and leave them high and dry like like Derby County. But you know, how do we even talk about change now, Davo, in this PSG Man City era? I mean, it's almost impossible, right? I mean, this is worse than the Super League. That's something that I was thinking to myself as listening to another podcast talk about this the other day. And I was thinking, this is actually worse than the Super League. Um, this is just difficult. And where does it go from here? What happens next? Um, this seems to now be carte blanche for any, you know, any uh, nation or, you know, group of international thugs. I mean, what happens? Are we going to stop like, you know, Albanian organized crime from buying a football team if they want to get it? Like where, what exactly happens next? Yeah, there was a, there was a question, I think it was on our green room last week. Uh, you know how I love hypothetical questions about history. Someone asked me with a straight face, Rog, if Hitler and Mussolini <laughs> had bought Everton Football Club, would you still support them? I was like, I kind of sidestepped it by saying probably not, but again, I'm not a normal football fan, so it doesn't mean a lot. That you know, what do we have in five years' time that we have a top three lock of Manchester City, Chelsea, and Newcastle United, with Liverpool, Manchester United, and Brentford battling it out for that fourth Champions League place? It all remains to be seen. I, I do find it amazing already. You know, there's still moral outrage in a lot of 
um, the newspaper editorials in England, but there's already kind of a kicking in of that transition into headlines linking Newcastle. One of them is Harry Kane, not out of the question for Newcastle switch. You know, Mbappe is linked. Um, even though early word is that this is not going to be an overnight transformation, but slow and steady. I mean, they they wake up when the Premier League returns in 19th place. Uh, there can only be an upward climb. You know, Everton, by the way, have spent over 500 million in the last couple of years and brought in, oh, well, what? But I do think, God, the idea of John Joe Shelby lining up with Mbappe, Haaland, with Ricardo Pepe up top, <laughs> Davo, is, oh, away the lads. With the Longstaff brothers. It's so good. <laughs> Longstaff. They will have sold those for 100 milli. Yeah. Explain to me, what is uh, what does Longstaff mean in English? <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, the like, Oh, we like. We like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Okay, Rog, you got to lift our spirits. Can you bring us home uh, with... A final toast with that exclamation point in a bottle, Jägermeister. I can, David. We talked a lot in this podcast about darkness and football, just in, in, in some of the worst ways. So I want to end by raising this shot of Jägermeister, this bolt of a human emotion in a shot glass to, to Forest Green Rovers, that really remarkable, progressive, pathfinding League Two club, that's England's fourth tier, who this weekend decided to bring the climate and ecological crisis into sharp focus. They took an unprecedented step by using their pitch side advertising boards to display real-time facts, real-time figures about fossil fuels, plastic waste, uh, and other environmental disasters in the making. Like you'd watch a game of football and the boards would flash exactly how long the world has until uh, oil runs out. Um, and this was in a match against Swindon, which was broadcast in 120 countries. And the idea was overseen by the club's artistic director, Massive Attacks, Robert Del Naja. And this comes from a club who in 2015 became the world's first vegan football club. Um, and the owners who include Hector Bellerin, all of them are fascinated by the idea of using a team's platform for the force of good. Um, one other note about Forest Green that I love, they are awaiting planning permission on a all-wooden 5,000-seater stadium. And their owner, Dale Vince, a green energy investor, said, some people might not like what they're seeing, but these are not adverts, just facts. And if you really don't like it, change how you live. Don't be angry at the reality. Courage. That is uplifting. Thanks for that, Rog. We needed that today in the post-lassification, but this is in a nice way of uh, English football. Okay, Rog, you can follow us on Twitter at Men and Blazers, at MC Davis, at Rog Bennett, on Instagram at Men and Blazers, at MC Davis, on Facebook at Men and Blazers. You can always send your ravens to the crap part of Soho. You can always email us at menandblazers at gmail.com. Vendorpunk, Rog. War pig. Was that a Rabona? I like snacks. Balds win, balds win. Take that, Gloria. Balds lose. To Tweed. Abrigado, rock on, mate. Kung Fu fighting America. Love you, Davo. Love you, Rog. Love you, Jossie Zardes. Oh. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or... You can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. 
Okay, so if you had a time machine, how far mm-hmm. in time would you need to go back to be a dominant basketball player of that era? <laughs> I need to go to when Bob Cousy was playing. Back I in, would, in the plumber 27 year old Shay would give Bob Cousy the fing business. <laughs> He's not guarding me. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondering. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the best. Each week, Shay and I are combing through all of the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling ones, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Six Trophies ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.